An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to be continuing our discussion from last week. Now, last week we uh, kind of laid the foundation for a very complex and long discussion, which is a discussion about the lesser ritual of the pentagram. And uh, while I definitely intended that episode to go a little bit quicker so that we could actually dive into some of the script and talk about the ritual... The reality is that um, this is a ritual I've been really passionate about, the history and the reasons why that we do these kind of things, because it is so influential in ceremonial magic. And so uh, the conversation went a little long, and um, we ended up breaking that episode off as its own breakdown of the history of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, a little bit of the history of uh, the Golden Dawn, not a whole lot, a little bit. Uh, we talked about some of the formation of it, where so they get some of their information. Um, yeah, and and then one of the things that I do feel like we need to recap, but I still strongly encourage people to go back, listen to that episode. There's a lot of context. We're going to be building on a lot of that context for this episode. Uh, we, we defined which script we're going to be looking at for the conversation today. Um, there are a lot of publications of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, and many of them differ from each other. Um, so we're going back to the first and second publication of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, uh, first published by Alistair Crowley, and then published by Israel Regardi. Um, we're also going to be looking at some of their commentary on it, as well as some other, um, some other information that ties closely into it uh, from various sources. The reason why I want to make sure that we state that plainly both in the history episode and in this episode is because there are a lot of traditions teaching this in various forms. They might do things a little bit differently. I encourage people to practice the ritual how, if you're in a formalized setting, practice the ritual how you're being taught. Um, but for the context of a conversation about the the history and why we do certain things, we have to define which things we're actually going to be discussing. Um, so that's the reason why we're going back to those oldest sources is because those oldest sources are closest to the uh, origin point of that uh, tradition. Um, so let's dive in and, and look at some of the specifics. Before we, before we actually read through the script, I want to kind of uh, show that there is a form to it, that there is a... Um, a pad, a recognizable pattern here, and we're gonna at the end of this talk a lot more in depth about what that pattern entails. Um, but basically, the ritual can be broken down into five unique portions. There are no like, I don't know. There's not like a like a paragraph break where it's like now do the next section. Uh, it's very much, you know, just there are five different sections of one text. And they have different uses, 
um, and do different things. The, the tone of each one of these is, is pretty different. So the very first one is going to be uh, the opener. Now, the opener of the ritual is uh, the Kabbalistic cross. We'll break that down in all of its entirety. Um, I do sometimes see people ask, do, do I always have to do this at the beginning and at the end? You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to do the lesser ritual, the pentagram, if you don't want to. Uh, but I do strongly suggest practicing the ritual in its full form, which includes, you know, maybe some symbols that you're, you know, that you got to work with. Uh, then after the opener of the Kabbalistic cross, we go into drawing the pentagrams and defining the circle. And then once the pentagrams and circle have been drawn, we move on to the calling of the archangels. And then we make a proclamation. And that proclamation is very short if you're doing the ritual as written for just daily practice. But the proclamation is the section where a lot of people will expand if they're doing like I don't know, maybe they're using the lesser ritual of the pentagram as a framework to do some other large, larger operation. This was the section that often gets expanded. So even though it's only, I think, a sentence, two sentences long, um, it's definitely the shortest of these five sections. I think that it's important to distinguish it as its own thing because it will uh, often be expanded later. Um, and then finally, you close in the same way that you opened. So we have the closer. The closer is, again, the Kabbalistic cross. And we'll break down each one of those sections and uh, all the different things that happen within them. So the script that I'm going to be reading from right here is the script taken from Liber O, which is the first publication of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. It's published in the Equinox, number one, or er, volume one, number two. I hate the numbering system for the Equinoxes. It's not how we would number them, usually. Um... So, Libero was first published by Alistair Crowley. We did a history episode recently, if I remember off the top of my head, it's 1909 as the first publication. This is the first time that we see The Lesser Ritual of the Pe uh, Pentagram published, uh, but we're all pretty confident that it originates earlier and from different individuals. So the ritual uh, reads as, uh, touching the forehead, say, Ata. Touching the breast, say Malkuth. Touching the right shoulder, say Vigabura. Touching the left shoulder, say Vigadula. Clasping the hands upon the breast, say Leolam Amen. Turning to the east, make a pentagram, that of earth, with the proper weapon, usually the wand, say, i.e. vibrate. Uh, and then it lists the tetragrammaton. Some people will say the tetragrammaton uh, letters, that we call them spellers. Um, they're going to say yod hey vav hey here. Some people will pronounce the word. The word is held in a, a certain um, sense of sanctity, and so I'm going to avoid pronouncing the word here. Um, there is a pronunciation that is listed in this document, so if you'd like to see it, but I do like to reserve that for very special situations. Um, I personally pronounce the word. Uh, I have very close friends of mine whose practice I very much respect who spell the word, and that's okay both ways. Um, then the ritual continues, turning to the south, the same, but say Adonai. Turning to the west, the same, but say Ehie. Turning to the north, the same, but say Agla. Uh, and then it lists the pronunciations. Um, 
extending the arms in the form of the cross, say, before me, Raphael, behind me, Gavriel, on my right hand, Michoel, on my left hand, Uriel, for about me flame the pentagrams, and in this column stands the six-rayed star. And then the exact line that it says here is, repeat one through five, the Kabbalistic cross. One through five was the touching the forehead, say, Ata, the breast, Malkuth, the right shoulder, Vigabura, the left shoulder, Vigadula, clasping upon the hands, upon the breast, say, Leolama, Amen. So that is the script of the lesser ritual of the pentagram. We talked a little bit about how there's openers and closers and uh, drawing pentagrams in circles. So I, I just want to, break down really quick those and then we'll get into specifics so the opener the Kabbalistic cross is the Atta Malkuth Vigabur Vigadu Lama Amen section uh, then it says turning to the east make a pentagram that of uh, with the proper weapon and say this divine name in this case it's the Tetragrammaton or yod heh vov uh, then turning to the south the same the same referencing meaning making the pentagram uh, and so you're this is the section where you're going around drawing the pentagrams on each one of the quarters and drawing a circle in uh, in conjunction with that uh, then we go to the calling of the archangels which is the section where it says extending the arms in the form of a cross before me Raphael behind me Gavriel my right hand Michael my left hand Uriel and then finally the proclamation which is for about me flame the pentagrams and in the column stands the six-rayed star proclaiming the space that you have defined and uh, what is in it uh, and its place and your place in the universe. So while it seems like a small two-liner tacked on the end of Calling Archangels, I would make a very strong argument that it is, in fact, its own section. And then finally, it says, repeat the Kabbalistic cross, which we already defined what that is. Um, so that's the ritual itself and the, the structure of five that I like to break it down into. The ritual is usually performed to the east, and there are some reasons why we would perform many rituals towards the east, but there are also some exceptions where we might perform this ritual pointed a different direction. So I wanted to kind of break down that. Usually we perform to the east because the east is kind of like spiritual north. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the orientation point for a lot of rituals because the sun rises in that spot and the day begins in that direction and uh, there's obviously a strong connotation with light with the sun with divine energies and those kinds of things and so usually we'll point things that direction um, sometimes where we might not do that uh, often these things are also pointed in the east if we have the space allowing us to do so but let's say we didn't Let's say we were doing one of these other things and it is not pointed towards the east. Uh, we would point towards the ritual spaces dedicated east, call that magical east. Um, so like, let's say we're doing uh, an initiation ceremony and the layout of the building is preventing us from pointing the entire initiation ceremony to the east. That's okay. We're still going to do that initiation ceremony. And um, if someone were to be in some kind of a dedicated space, uh, like that, or maybe setting up that space, they might point ritual, lesser ritual of the pentagram included, uh, to whatever direction that is oriented into. Same thing applies with temples. Let's say we have like a like a dedicated temple space uh, that we're using for ritual practice on a regular basis, and let's say that it the temp that 
temple space cannot be oriented towards the east. That might be another example where that might happen. Personal altars is another example where, um, let's say, your bedroom is a place that you have, you know, an altar, and you, because of the layout of the house, are unable to point that towards the east. But you decide that you're going to do the lesser ritual, the pentagram, and. I would make an argument here that a lot of people will still point the lesser ritual the pentagram towards the east but if you wanted to an option is to point towards the altar instead to um, work you're working in conjunction with the altar so those are some examples when we might change the direction to be in line with dedicated spaces and that's really kind of the point that i'm that i'm trying to get to is we try to make our dedicated spaces pointed towards the east in most traditions, but there are times where we are prevented from doing that because of the mundane factors that we exist in. Uh, another example might be when doing variations of the lesser ritual of the pentagram or other rituals that are written on its uh, on the backbone that, that it provides, the formula that it provides. An example of that is uh, Liber Reguli. Reguli points towards uh, the Bleskine house, and so where I live, the Bleskine house is east of me. So I still would do reguli towards the east. But if I lived on the other side of the world, I would point towards that house. And so uh, there are rituals where you might define magical east instead of towards the dedicated space, uh, towards some direction of religious significance. Um, similar to how, like, um, if you were an active practitioner of Islam, you might point towards Mecca for certain prayers or certain, you know, practices. Um, there are some of those types of things in, in occult practice as well. And then the last reason why you might not go to, towards the East is if you were doing rituals of specific elements or forces. So, like, let's say we were doing, like, a fire element thing, we might begin the ritual pointed south so that we are facing, instead of facing the dawning sun, the direction of the dawning sun, we would be facing, you know, the point of the sun at its highest. The noon point is slightly south in the sky. Uh, now, of course, that is assuming that you live in the northern hemisphere, because if you lived in the southern hemisphere, that association wouldn't make a whole lot of sense the the noon sun would be behind you so the source of fire would be to the north uh, so there's there's different uh, times where you might decide that the specific working itself maybe not the dedicated space not maybe not towards a um, significant site but maybe just the ritual itself where you're trying to work with more specific forces um, or like for example maybe you're doing like a water thing and uh, you would start the ritual towards the west being the element of fire or the element of water direction from this particular ritual. Um, but usually, usually you're gonna start facing the east. So let's talk about the Kabbalistic cross and its origins and what it means and those kinds of things. So, uh, the, the words themselves are Atta, Malkuth, Vigabura, Vigadula, Leolam, Amen. And 
the motions are touching the forehead, touching the breast. It is originally written as touching the breast. There are some other versions. There are versions where uh, people uh, touch lower on the body to be closer towards uh, Malkuth. I think that that's a valid consideration. If you know a lot about Kabbalistic systems, um, the, the tree of life and the body parts that are associated there, it's a valid direction to go. Um, when this ritual was written, they were touching the breast for Malkuth, but they were visualizing that they had drawn things down from the head to the chest and then continued it down into the feet. And so there's um, there's some stuff going on there that, that still incorporate that same symbolism that some people choose to like touch their feet, for example, for Malkuth. Um, so, Atal Malkuth, Vigabudur, Vigadula, Leilam, Amen, touching the head, the chest, the right and the left shoulder, uh, and then clasping the hands together uh, in the middle of the chest, Leilam, Amen. So what those words actually translate to, and they're in parentheses within the script itself, is unto thee the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Amen. Now, um, that's actually a quote. It's not a very well translated quote. It is um, a quote from a specific individual's prayer. So that quote is a quote taken from uh, Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's the story of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life. Uh, he's just about to be captured by the Romans and nailed on the cross. And it's his last prayer that he's delivering uh, while a free man. Uh, he gives the prayer, exits the garden, and is immediately arrested uh, by the Romans. Uh, so this is like the, the last prayer just before the betrayal of Judas becomes evident. And the end of that prayer, he says, unto thee the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It's the very end of the prayer. Um, throughout the lesser ritual of pentagram, there are going to be a lot of symbols there are Jewish symbols, Christian symbols, very a lot of Abrahamic uh, systems are here. And so we're going to continue to talk about a lot of that kind of stuff. And it is kind of a, a strange thing when, when most occultism does not focus very heavily on uh, Abrahamic traditions. Um, but this is a very foundational ritual. And we want to present it in its entirety. We want to present it in a way that it is... Um, you know, properly dissected and understood. So this idea of doing a Kabbalistic cross comes from the works of Eliphas Levi. He wrote a book uh, between 1854 and 1856. He published two separate books, which now in a modern day are, are often published together, uh, which is Dogma et Ritual de la Hot. And I don't speak French, so I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. But uh, it's dogma and ritual of high magic. Um, sorry, it's, it's transcendental magic, not high magic. So it's, uh, he published two books. Uh, and the first one was um, dogma of transcendental magic. The second was ritual of transcendental magic. Nowadays, we usually publish them as a single text called dogma and ritual of transcendental magic. But they were published... Uh, separately, originally. And in there, uh, and go back to the history episode, we talk a little bit about why Eliphas Levi's work is uh, important in this context. 
Uh, in there, he lists a Kabbalistic cross. He calls it the Kabbalistic cross, and he lists the words as Tibersunt Malkuth et Gubura et Chesed per Aeonis. Um, he claims that it is Latin for, for thine is the kingdom, the justice, and the mercy in the generating ages. It translate if you were to translate it directly, it translates a little bit better to to you are the kingdom and the strength and the mercy by the aeons. Um, it doesn't really translate really well to that, to be fair, because it is two different languages kind of superimposed on each other. Uh, so all of the spheres on the tree of life are um, in Hebrew, Malkuth, Geburah, Hesed. Uh, whereas there's some Latin mixed in there, Tibasunt, Et, and Parianos. Um, so it's a little bit of a, um, a smorgasbord of languages and smashing together of ideas. But it's basically this. It, he's, he says that it's done crossing yourself over. He claims that it is the Lord's Prayer, and it translates roughly to, in, in his work, for thine is the kingdom, the justice, and the mercy, and the generating ages. Whereas with the lesser ritual of the pentagram, we have Atta Malkuth Vigabura Vigadula Leolam Amen, to unto thee the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Which is, uh, as we already said, it's in uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's the very end of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, you can find that in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And I'm going to absolutely butcher this pronunciation in... Uh, my speaking, but in Hebrew, it would translate a little bit better to, uh, and you can find this if you want to find a, a Hebrew version of the Bible. Um, so it's the exact same words for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because of sentence structure, it would change a little bit to kileha hamalaha viga vihe gevura vihitifrit le ohmethi olimim amen um so there's a little bit of confusion around that part but what we are saying is that you know we're we're uh, drawing in this particular source of symbol and power now crowley amends this later in his life um where it's no longer um it's no longer saying and he also add he adds a point of the body that you're touching on um, it's hard to say what his goal there was uh, I have heard it suggested that he was blaspheming I have heard it suggested that he was updating the ritual for new Aeon concepts by eliminating old Aeon concepts I have heard it uh, said that he was just fixing the ritual there's a lot of different perspectives on why he taught it different later in his life but basically when he amended it he amended it as um ata iowa's malkuth touching the forehead then the breast for iowa's and then the uh i believe it was the groin for uh, malkuth and then continuing as it's written so it can be interpreted a couple of different ways. One is to be saying that he's changing the words to no longer say unto thee, being a reference to God, unto thee the kingdom, but now he is saying unto Iowa is the kingdom. And that's where um, some of that perspective comes in that it might be, you know, uh, 
interpreted as blasphemy. I'm not accusing Crowley of blasphemy, uh, but I'm pointing out that there are some um, some people that think that this might have been the purpose. Um, the other interpretation that I hear is that he's he's just updating it for New Aeon because in the New Aeon concepts, the kingdom is uh, that of Iowa's and that of the individual and uh, Holy Guardian Angel and those kinds of concepts, and so that he was bringing it into New Aeon concepts. So interpretation's kind of up, but it does change the sentence, which is very important to understand. So that's what they do for opening the Kabbalistic Cross, touching the forehead. The, the system that we're going to be talking about is touching the breast, but um, we'll continue on. Then we would get to the pentagrams in the circles, the drawing of the pentagrams in the circles. And this is the part where everyone starts screaming at each other and complains about. Uh, stick with me. I believe that there are reasons for every single thing that is written in there. But if you are studying this uh, seriously and surrounded by others who are also studying it seriously, this is the section where everyone is going to start arguing, you should change this, this should be done this other way, I don't like that this is on this quarter, why do we draw this direction, all of those kinds of things. This is the section everyone gets up in arms about. Um, the first thing that everyone gets up in arms about is that we go clockwise around the circle uh, for invoking, but then we also go clockwise around the circle for banishing. And uh, it really just depends on... Um, how we interpret that the ritual is originally written as a yeah it does it doesn't actually state it says turning to the east make a pentagram with the proper weapon it doesn't actually state whether this is writing the banishing version or the invoking version so some people believe that it's just you know you should know better go counterclockwise if you're doing a banishing um some people have claimed that it is a blind, that it is a mistake. Uh, a blind is when there's purposefully incorrect information in order to lead the uninitiated or the unexperienced astray for their own protection or for the safeguarding of secrets. Uh, and that, uh, it, you know, it's it's like a on-purpose mistake. And then some people believe it's a mistake mistake. I don't actually believe that it is a mistake. And it has been practiced for many, many years from multiple traditions as going clockwise for both. And um, one reason that I don't think that it's a mistake is that prior to Gardner's work, Gardner kind of introduces this idea that every motion within the ritual space should be clockwise for one and counterclockwise for the other. And... Uh, this is to go so far as to say if you're standing side by side with someone within a ritual, let's say they're standing off to your left-hand side, but you're doing a banishing ritual, that instead of turning, you know, the 90 degrees to face them and then handing them the thing, that you should turn all the way around to your left-hand side, spin all the way around, and then be facing them because every single action within the circle should be in the one direction or the other. And this is something that we don't really see within... The lesser ritual, the pentagram, or the systems that are being taught around it, um, it's very possible that this is kind of a, a system that gets added in later from Gardner's work. And there's this other reason why I think that it goes clockwise for both, because everything within the ritual is very much, I mean, it is specific. 
it is the symbols here are incredibly specific for uh, I mean every every angle every direction everything is perfectly in place so I, I hesitate to change it and this is one of the potential reasons why we might be going invoking for both or clockwise for both so um, there's this this practice um, it's called Kav Hayamin which is a Jewish practice. Remember, a lot of the symbols we're going to be talking about today are either Jewish symbols, Christian symbols, those types of things, definitely down the Abrahamic route of symbol sets. Um, so there's this, this process called Kav Hayamin, where in a temple, in a Jewish temple, when the first Kohen would uh, enter early in the morning, basically when they leave at night, they lock all the doors. When they arrive first thing in the morning, they would unlock the doors and they would do so turning to the right and proceeding to go counterclockwise to unlock everything that was is within that temple to go through. And um, this is all based on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. There is this idea that uh, the right-hand side of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life is the path of mercy. And um, so they begin their day unlocking the temple unlocking the sacred space by taking a step to the right. Now, uh, that it, it ties all into this concept of the sphere of Hesed and, and those kinds of things. Now, um, I know what I just said is counterintuitive to what it sounds like the ritual is. I'm not saying that the lesser ritual of pentagram is to invert that system. In fact, I'm saying it is to honor it or that a potential is that it is to honor it. Because if you start outside of a space, you start outside of a, you're, you're on the outside of the building and you're gonna unlock a door and step into that door and then decide which direction you're going to go around and you're gonna make sure that you turn to the right first and start going around the building, that will lead you in a counterclockwise position. But if you are standing within a circle that you have not defined yet, you're kind of building the building around yourself, right? The sacred space is not in a building that you're walking into. It's the space you're already standing in the center of. And you walk to the first door, straight forward, and then you have to make a step either to the left or the right-hand side. If your first step is towards that right side, following that practice, you'll find yourself going clockwise around the circle. So even though in the temple they would go counterclockwise, it is to honor that first step being onto the path, uh, onto Hesed. And so if you were to do that same similar concept within the pentagram ritual, you would find yourself going clockwise. It's a complicated thing to kind of describe. I really hope that I painted the picture really well. And I think that's one of the particular reasons. Another reason might potentially be that this ritual was never really, even when it is the banishing form of the invoking ritual, it, it itself is not in its totality a banishing you are invoking forces and then those invoked forces are banishing on your behalf or stabilizing on your behalf. And so to look for some evidence towards that idea, um, I have a quote here from uh, Magic Book 4. It's, it's within chapter 13 where Crowley is talking about the, the banishing ritual of the pentagram. And he says, in the banishing ritual of the pentagram, 
We not only command the demons to depart, but invoke the angels and their hosts to act as guardians of the circle during our preoccupation with the ceremony proper. In more elaborate ceremonies, it is usual to banish, fish, uh, to banish everything by name, each element, each planet, and each sign, perhaps even the Sephiroth themselves. All are removed, including the very one which we wished to invoke, for that forces as existing in nature is always impure. But this process, being long and wearisome, is not altogether advisable in actual workings. It is usually sufficient to perform a general banishing and to rely upon the aid of the guardians invoked. The banishing ritual, the pentagram, is the best to use. So, um, in that quote, I really like that Crowley does a couple of things. He explains magical systems in general and this idea of using banishing as a form of creating an empty void of energies in order to only work with one type of thing. Uh, personally, I really like that. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, the other thing is that twice he refers to this as a ritual. He, he refers to the banishing ritual, the pentagram, not the invoking ritual, the pentagram, specifically the banishing ritual, the pentagram, as invoking uh, archangels. He, once he calls them archangels, once he calls them guardians. So I think that's really interesting, right? So this idea that one of the reasons we might be going in an invoking fashion is that this ritual is not in itself a banishing. It is a ritual invocation. That's a potential. Another reference towards something down that line is Israel Regardi's work in The Golden Dawn. Uh, there's an introduction to the first edition where he says, the pentagrams trace a cleansing and protecting circle of force invoked by the four names of the four letters each about the limits of the personal sphere, and the archangels are called by vibration to act as great stabilizing influences. So he kind of explains how it works. And he says, the archangels are called, right? He's saying they're being drawn in, they're being invoked, right? Uh, so I think that is another potential as to why we go invoking form. Okay, so we talked about why we go a specific direction around the circle. Now, why are those elements in that corner? This is the part, it, this is the other part, this is one of the two parts where people start screaming at each other. Every other weekend, somebody online goes onto Reddit or Facebook or Twitter or something, it's their second time doing the Lesser Vanishing Ritual, the pentagram, and they go, hey, just want to send this message out to the whole world so that everyone knows that I've discovered the right way to do the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, and it's that we should put fire in the east. Every goddamn time, the, the blind that they think they have found is that fire shouldn't be in the south, it should be in the, should be in the east. And then they adjust the ritual to make sense to them. Um, you can move things around all you want. That's totally fine. There are a ton of different systems for putting elements in specific corners. Nearly every system has its own elemental directions. No two systems agree with each other. And the Golden Dawn, who wrote the ritual, had more than one. Now that last detail, I think, is the most important. The Golden Dawn, who wrote this particular ritual, had more than one direction for elemental corners. They talked a lot about how the elements were like winds and that they could uh, adapt and roll around to other sides of the quarters. But if we look at um, these specific directions, often we hear people reference uh, the Greek system of the Anemoi. Now the Anemoi are 
the uh, the Greek winds. The um, they're they're semi-elemental in nature. They definitely have elemental aspects to them. And often people say the reason why the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the pentagram is, or the elemental quarters is like this, is because ancient Greece did it like this. And the reason they did it like this was because of the anemoi, these elemental winds coming in from these four corners. Um, it is kind of true that some of the idea of bringing an element from a specific quarter might be drawn from that. It's also partially true that one of the reasons the Golden Dawn might have done that and often referenced them as elemental winds and how they could bend around and come from different angles was partially in reference to this. But I do want to take a second and dispel the claim that the Anemoi is the reason why we put them in that corner. The reason we usually hear is uh, Boreas, Zephyrus, Eurus, and Notus are four winds. Uh, Boreas coming from uh, Boreas coming from the north was the bringer of winter. Uh, Zephyrus was the west wind. Uh, was associated with being a very gentle wind, bringing in the springtime, and thus got associated with water. Um, excuse me. Eurus being the east wind was like a turbulent wind, and it was uh, because of its turbulence associated with air and notice being the south wind was a hot summer fiery wind coming from the south. Um, I don't think that that's a good enough explanation. It's not a perfect system. One of the reasons why it's not a perfect system is because the Greeks personified everything, including all of the other directions that the wind might come from. And, um, so they didn't have four winds. They had, you know, they had many. Um, this information was first, um, there was a Greek scholar in 1796 called Adamantius Corias, and he gives some diagrams that show how there's all these different winds from all these different directions. I mean, there's, there's over 12 of them. Some of the directions have more than one associated with them because obviously the Greek empire, its religion and its traditions were around for such a long period of time that some of those symbols changed over time. Um, they, 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 they changed this themselves many, many times. There's a, um, there, there's a couple of references to these winds throughout history. Homer recognizes only four winds, didn't name any of them, but that's found in the Odyssey. Um, Aristotle places eight symmetrical ones, um, or he places eight different winds symmetrically around a circle. He places uh, Aparsitius in the north, Epeletos in the east, Notus in the south, Sephorus in the west, with the addition of four other ones. Um, one of them is uh, Eurus, which is the southeast wind in his system, which a lot of times when people are referencing the winds being the reason for this, they'll put Eurus in um, the east. Um, but he had placed it in the southeast. Um, there's, there's a couple of other ones as well. There's, there's an interesting structure uh, that was built uh, called the Tower of Winds. It has eight different sides to it and they are pointed towards different directions, some of which match, like Boreas, um, which is in the north. Uh, some of them, like Notus, do not. They don't, they don't actually match. And uh, he had eight winds which were completely different. They're not completely different. There are several that are different from Aristotle's. Whoever built that uh, architectural piece had placed different ones in the different corners. 
even if we say we're only going to use these four um, for whatever for whatever purpose, Boreas is not necessarily associated with the north, uh, being the, the bringer of winter. He's, he's actually the northwest wind. Uh, Zephyrus, the west wind, isn't, it's not a perfect association to say that it's associated with water. It's more associated with flowers and the husbandman to the uh, the rainbow entity, the, the personification of the rainbows. So I don't think that that's a really good explanation either. Uh, Urus, as we already said, was not really that associated with the east. It was associated with the southeast. And notice, uh, while it was the south wind and often related to being hot and associated with the summer, the thing it was most associated with was being the bringer of Wind of summer storms being the, the, the place where all this water is dumped down. And so um, there's there's just so much conflicting information with the idea of the Anemoy being associated with these with these four entities being on these four quarters and thus being these four elements. There's there's too much of a hodgepodge here of different things. Now a system that makes a lot more sense for why we put specific elements into specific quarters because it was being studied by the Golden Dawn at the time. They wrote several papers on it. Some of the papers have been preserved to this day in uh, Israel Regardi's work um, is the system of the Tatwas. Now the Tatwas are, there's five Tatwas um, and a global energy cycle of Tatvic tides begins. It's an Eastern tradition, uh, Hindu Tantrism. Beginning at dawn, uh, there is a period of time, if I remember correctly, each one lasts like two hours. And the rising of the sun signals the first two-hour period where the energy is related to um, Akasha, being the spirit Tava, symbolized by a big black egg. Then it would transition into the next one, which is Vayu, which is the air Tava, symbolized by a blue circle. Then uh, Tehas, which is the fire tattva, symbolized by a red triangle. Apas, the water triangle, symbolized by a silver crescent. And Prithivi, the earth, symbolized by uh, a yellow square. Now, these symbols were often interworked into Golden Dawn teachings because uh, this was a system that they were experimenting with at the time. And it makes a lot of sense that the lesser ritual, the pentagram, would follow some form of cycle that exists in the world, uh, exists some magical cycle, and that you're going around the circle in a specific order, because that's how the lesser ritual, the hexagram, is written. The lesser ritual, the hexagram, follows the order of the zodiac through its elemental quarters. So it starts off with Aries, which is a fire element. Fire is in the east. And then it transitions over into the next, which is the Taurus, which is, the, uh, it, it's just a symbol of Earth. So it goes from fire to Earth. Then it goes to Gemini, which is an air symbol. And then it goes to Cancer, which is a water symbol. And then it cycles back around and continues and goes. So there's, this, um, there's two things to be said about this here. The first being, when you go clockwise for all of the operations, banishing and invoking you keep that pattern um, intact because it's definitely put there on purpose in order to reference this celestial pattern. And in the case of the pentagram ritual, we're doing the same kind of concept with the tattva hours 
where it starts off with spirit, which is you standing in the center, and then you walk over to the east, uh, which is the air element, the Vayu air element, and then you go turn towards the south, which is the fire element, and you go through in this exact order, the air, fire, water, and earth in that order. So I think uh, this is a much, much, much more likely reason why and I don't, I have yet to come across someone blatantly saying, this is why we do, okay, I should, I should paraphrase that. I have yet to come across someone who was trained in the original Golden Dawn's work saying, this is why the Golden Dawn did it in this order in the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram. But you can find that information for Lesser Ritual of Hexagram. So it's a very big clue as to why we would be doing it in an order following some type of energetic cycle. Um, the Tatwas can be examined if you'd like to further. Uh, it's an Eastern school tradition. Brigarde, like I said, published a paper uh, called The Tatwas of the Eastern School. Uh, it was labeled and dated as 1898, which would have been after the, um, the Golden Dawn had fractured into several other orders. Um, he published it in his work, The Golden Dawn. And uh, the original document is claimed to be of the Mathers and Brody days of the Golden Dawn. Um, in it, it quotes, For five garis, we, as we have said, the breath flows through our nostrils. In these five garis, or two-hour periods, the Tatwas have their course. In the first, we have Akasa, in the second, Vayu, in the third, Tejas, in the fourth, Apas, in the fifth, Prathivi. Thus, in one day and night, or 60 garis, we have 12 courses of these five tatvas, each remaining on the gari and returning again in two hours. Oh, so it's, two, it's a two-hour cycle through all of them, not two hours in each uh, hour. I was close. Um, then it also establishes the pattern, which I think is really important. Starts with the casa, goes through the four elements in that order. So... I think that's a lot of the reason why we end up doing air on the east specifically for this ritual and then for another ritual we don't have air on the east because that's you know that's how the golden dawn had taught it it was referencing some energetic system um it does coincide with what uh ritual de la hut magi or the uh ritual transcendental magic um published by Eliphas Levi in 1856. In chapter four, when he's talking about the elements, it's the chapter titled The Conjunction of the Four, he breaks down several elemental spirits. Uh, the spirits of the gnomes, salamanders, sylphs, and undines. Um, gnomes being a reference to earth elemental spirits salamanders is an interesting one salamanders uh nowadays we would associate with being like a small amphibious creature that lives in the river uh back in his period and the periods before salamanders because of their bright orange colors were associated with fire it was believed that they were climbing out of volcanoes and cooling themselves in the river so the reason why they kept finding salamanders in the river was not that it was an aquatic creature but that it was a volcanic creature due to its color that was cooling itself in the river uh, because it's so hot. <laughs> uh, so salamanders uh, is not a reference to actual little salamanders running around, uh, but a, a reference to these elemental spirits, which they named after salamanders. Uh, and then sylphs and undines being 
air element and water elemental creatures. Um, he His quote says in chapter four, he says, it must be borne in mind that the special kingdom of the gnomes is at the north. So that would put earth in the north. The salamanders at the south, that would put fire at the south. The sylphs at the east, that would put air in the east. And the undines at the west, that would put water in the west. So that is the same quarters that um, the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram as written, has. Um, so I believe that it's kind of a mix of the two. I think that the Tatva hours was a major inspirational source and that they confirmed that with Eliphas Levi's work where they went, oh, and that would make sense on what he's talking about. Even though I don't believe that uh, Eliphas Levi was familiar with the Tatwa hours. I think he was more referencing, um, you know, the, uh, the breakdown of things as it relates to Europe. Because uh, to the west of Europe is a shit ton of water. And to the south is the equator, so a lot of the heat comes up from up there. A lot of the countries uh, had large land masses to the north of many of their population centers, uh, which would put like, mountains and those kinds of things. And then uh, the eastern winds would come in with a lot of force. So I think that that's probably where he had come up with a lot of these ideas. I don't believe he was referencing the top hours, but knowing that the Golden Dawn wrote uh, wrote the ritual um, and were studying the top hours, they, they were probably focusing on that that cycle and then reinforced that image or that information with Elifus Levi's work. So um, we know which element is on which corner. So then we would go to that corner and then draw a star. Which star would you draw? Pentagram, five-pointed star. Each point of the pentagram is associated with different things. This is going to be a little bit difficult to describe because I find that describing this with a visual representation helps. You can go ahead and look it up online if you'd like. Uh, elemental, elemental associations, corners, pentagram. I'm sure that'll probably give it to you. Uh, but basically the very, very top of the pentagram is uh, the spirit. On the left-hand side is air. On the right-hand side is water. Bottom left is earth. Bottom right is fire. So that would give us a star with some elements pointed in certain directions. Now Crowley uh, publishes some charts in Libro where there's a whole bunch of different pentagrams and they're all drawn similarly and then they have like an arrow pointed from, you know, uh, you're starting at this point and you're starting the line, you know, this direction. And if you were to continue that out, you'd figure out, you know, which which element is on which which elemental pentagram is associated with which element. Um, there are some extra ones that are thrown in there. Spirit active and spirit passive. It's not just fire, water, air, and earth. Spirit active is like... The, the word that I was always taught with was uh, male and female energies. And I think that nowadays we're steering away from male and female and steering towards more either active or passive or positive and negative not to say negative in like a like a bad light but like um active versus receptive like projective energy versus receptive energy that tends to be some terms that we use a little bit more nowadays but 
when I was originally taught, active and passive had meant um, male-type energies, not male-type people, if that makes sense. It wasn't like a reference to men and women. It was a reference to receptive energies or projective energies. Similar to how you might have like a male or female power outlet where one has prongs on it, one has a hole on it. One of them is receiving the, the junction of the two items together and the other is, um, you know, sticking out a part towards that. So that would be kind of the difference between active and passive. And basically, um, you would have a star that's drawn with uh, most of the pentagrams. You would start... You would, you would start a direction drawing either towards or away from a specific element. So let's say it's the element of Earth. If you're invoking the element of Earth, you would start at a point and draw towards the corner of Earth. So you'd start at the top, move your way down to the bottom left, and then continue your star around. If you were banishing, you'd start at the element of Earth and push away from. You'd be banishing away Earth element back up to the top and going around the star in that direction. This is a very complicated thing to try to describe without pictures. Um, doing this leaves an overlap. And this is one of the big frustrations that a lot of people have is that the there is an overlap of two stars. They are the same star. So it is the uh, invoking of water and the banishing of air or vice versa. Banishing of water, invoking of air. Uh, are the same star. The way that it's usually taught in tradition is the difference between those is which color you visualize the star in. So if you visualize a yellow star starting on that line and moving across, then that would be, you know, air versus a blue star starting on that same corner and moving across would be water. There's some interesting information here too which is the way that the alchemists uh, used to view the elements of air and water as being much more closely related than other elements. Um, one of the things that they had observed in the physical world around them was that if you go, as the day is heating up, if you go sit by like a lake or a pond or a river, as the day is heating up, you'll actually see mist forming and floating up off of the river. And the way that they interpret that was that water is giving birth to air. That, that it's giving birth to clouds and those are floating up and becoming clouds. And then the other thing that they had noticed is that out of the sky and these big floaty cloud things sometimes falls droplets of water when it rains. And that was kind of like air giving birth to water. And so there's a really strong connection between specifically air and water and um, these pentagrams being invoking of one is banishing of the other and vice versa. So there's a lot of information there. And it, this leads a lot of people to say we should disregard the active and passive ones entirely and we should do it more the way that they do the lesser ritual, the hexagram, which is they'll start on whatever that corner is. Uh, hexagram is planetary associations. Each one of the points is associated with a specific um, planet. So let's say you were doing, I don't know, Saturn, start at the very, very top one, and you would go clockwise for invoking and counterclockwise for 
banishing. Um, a, a lot of people have suggested over the years, and I myself experimented for several years about doing the pentagrams in a similar fashion, disregarding the active spirit and the active passive, and just starting on whatever and going clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on which one you were working with. Um, I think that it has some merit. It's a viable way to do it, but I think that it leaves out a very, very important point on why you might draw the spirit actives and spirit passives on those particular lines. And it's that if you look at the layout of the star, the line that goes from earth to water is that line, which would join, um, it, it would join your, your two passive or female elements. It's the only line that connects those two. Same is true for the active side with fire and air. It's the only thing that connects those two. And so when they're drawing these pentagrams, uh, you would start at the bottom most, let's say it's, let's say it's feminine energy. Let's say we're working with passive, uh, active passive, or um, invoking passive. So if you're invoking passive energy, you would start at the lowermost point, which in this case would be earth, and you'd move up to the uppermost point, which in this case would be water, and then you'd continue your star around. If you were working with uh, banishing that same energy, you would start with the uppermost point, which would be water, and draw a line down to uh, the lowermost point, which would be earth. So, and the same thing is flipped for, um, for uh, the active elements, where fire is the lowest most point, and air is the uppermost point, uh, you would draw the energy up or push the energy down on the star in order to invoke or banish. So, um, yeah. There's a lot of information as to why they're drawn the way that they are. I feel that that's probably the most complicated thing I will ever try to describe without uh, diagrams or video or something like that. So it, it is definitely something I suggest. Taking a look at Liber O to see those shapes that I'm describing and which points are associated with which things. You know, you can Google all of those kind of things. Um, but now that you're aware that there's a reason there, hopefully we'll dispel some of the um, the newer invention of removing two of the pentagrams and then trying to, uh, quote-unquote, fix the, the pentagram system. It was done for a reason. It was done for a re it, first off, it was done for the intricate alchemical relationship between air and water, and it was done for the connecting lines between the two elements that match active or passive. So that's the section where we go through and draw the stars. So um, we know what we're drawing. We know what quarter we're drawing them on. The ritual script as written specifies which element we're drawing. Why? What a weird thing for it to do. It starts and it goes, turning to the east, make a pentagram, that of Earth. And, and that's kind of a complicated thing, because then it says, and then do the same, and then do the same, and then do the same. Some people have interpreted that as we should do, uh, I don't know, Earth on one side and do different elements on the other sides, but we already know that, you know, the elements are quartered to specific sections for a reason, uh, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it that way. There's actually some writing on why they specifically used earth pentagrams on every single quarter. For the lesser ritual, the pentagram only, 
earth element is on every single corner. So you do earth pentagram, banishing or earth invoking on every single quarter. The reason why they would do that, uh, Regarda goes pretty in depth into this information. He says uh, in his book, The Golden Dawn, is Regarda says, in the invoking pentagram of earth, the current descendeth from the spirit to the earth. So you go from the spirit section of the pentagram down to the earth section of the pentagram. It's the invoking pentagram. You're drawing spirit down to us. In the banishing pentagram, the current is reversed. You're banishing up the earth into the spirit so it can be cleansed, right? Uh, and then he, in a separate section, he ex uh, explains further, saying these two pentagrams are in general use for invocation or banishing. Their use is given to the neophyte of the First Order of the Golden Dawn under the title of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. That, to me, suggests a couple of things. Number one, it suggests that uh, there's a whole system here and that we're just titling one small subsection of that ritual as the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. It also suggests that using the earth, banishing and invoking are used for general use. That they are affecting all of the different elements. And that kind of goes back into Kabbalistic teachings. It goes back into that hermetic school of thought, using the Kabbalah uh, to analyze the structure of energies in the universe, right? So the, the sphere of Malkuth being representative of earth in the uh, planetary spheres, right? The very base of the tree where you stand, physical reality. Uh, it is the farthest away from the sphere of Kether, from spirit, right? But it also uh, can, if you, f if, you, if you think of the very top as pouring in water, and then the water pours down into each one of these different chambers and then pours down into the next ones, uh, there's this teaching within the Kabbalistic system that a, a sphere that is below another sphere on the tree receives something from that sphere. Kether, everything exists in its pure form, but it's all in potential. It's the potential of all these things having been manifest. But as things move down the tree, they shift in different energy forms. And Kether at the very bottom is receptive of all of those different things in manifest form. So there's this idea that like Earth is made up of all of the things above it within the tree. So that's one of the reasons why you might use a banishing of Earth in order to... Um, banish everything is because earth is made up of everything it's the most universal thing that we have other than spirit energy and if we're working down in malkuth it makes sense to use the representation of everything manifest instead of the representation of everything unmanifest so there's some teaching that goes in line with that as to why earth is more universal of a symbol to use than any of the others um yeah okay so which pentagram are we using what elements are on what quarters, why we're going around specific directions. We've covered all of that. What are you actually visualizing when you're drawing the star? So often it is described as uh, flaming blue light. That is flaming blue stars. Different authors have described what they mean by I visualize flaming blue stars as different things. Um, there's some teaching that uh, astral light and astral fire is of this blue quality. Um, so a lot of the reason why a general use ritual would be using just general astral light uh, makes a lot of sense. So lining it up with that symbol. 
Um, in the middle pillar, printed in 1938 uh, by Isra Rigardi, he describes the color quality of that as being blue golden light like the fire of mentholated spirits. So if you've ever like burned an alcohol burner or this is a dangerous thing, I don't suggest doing it, but I know a lot of us in our teenage years probably did, so it's a good example. Have you ever taken hand sanitizer and like rubbed it in your hands and then lit your hand on fire and then patted it out before it actually hurt you? Like it's a really common thing for like teenage boys to be like, oh look, hand sanitizer is flammable. And when you burn hand sanitizer, the main burning component is mentholated spirits. Um, mentholated spirits just meaning alcohol that still has menthol in it. Uh, yeah. Um, meth methanol menthanol it's not methanol yeah methanol um it burns in like a like a light wispy blue color and the very very tips of those flames eventually start to become more yellow white right so that's the the color quality that he's describing and um that of course is referencing this particular tone or color. Now, Crowley and Rigardi both wrote more about what color you could draw these in. Crowley in Libero writes, turning to the east, make a pentagram, that of Earth, with the proper weapon, say, the tetragrammaton. Uh, and then in a, a later section, in subsection two, uh, he should he says, these rituals should be practiced until the figures drawn appear in flame, in flame so near to physical flame that it would perhaps be visible to the eyes of a bystander were one present. So he describes it as literally being a star that looks like it is on fire in this, in this color. Oh, I guess he, he emits the color. Regardi uh, says, make in the air towards the east the invoking pentagram as shown bringing the dagger to the center of the pentagram, vibrate the deity name. And then he actually writes yod heh vav -Hey. So we know that Rigardi was a speller, not a sayer. <laughs> we know Crowley was a sayer, not a speller. It's, it's, a, it's a fun uh, dichotomy of personalities. Um, so Rigardi continues saying, uh, in a different section, he continues saying, from each re-entering angle of the pentagram, therefore issueth a ray, representing a radiation from the divine, Therefore, it is called the flaming pentagram, or star of great light, in affirmation of the forces of divine light to be found therein. Now, if we wilt, draw a pentagram to have by thee as a symbol, thou shalt make it of the colors already taught upon a black ground. Um, those are two separate quotes that are both taken from his explanation of the ritual of the pentagram, which is in book four. And um, so they are describing something different. And I think it's really important to, to note that it's probably true that in the original form of the ritual, it was not explained what they meant by visualize a flaming pentagram, but that it probably was taught you should visualize a flaming pentagram because somewhere down the line, one fracture, well, the original Golden Dawn was teaching or Crowley had interpreted that teaching as being to appear in flame near to physical flame. And by the time it got to Rigardi, a fracture or two later, uh, they were teaching that it's called a flaming pentagram because of this light issuing out of the pentagram. So it's going to be up to personal interpretation there which direction you're going to go. Um, but I really want to focus on 
another quality of something that Regardi says, because I do see this tied into other rituals and, and certain people's personal practices with the lesser ritual of the pentagram. He says, now if thou wilt draw the pentagram to have by thee as a symbol, here's the line that really focus on, thou shalt make it of colors already taught, of the colors already taught upon a black ground. Um, in that particular chapter, Regarding never explains what he means by the colors already taught upon a black ground. But we can we can look at it in the next chapter. I think it's the next chapter. It might be a couple chapters later. Later in the book, he says the same phrase when he's talking about the ritual of the hexagram. He says, he uses the phrase, make it of the colors already taught upon a black ground. Um... And then he explains it with the next sentence where he says, these are the planetary powers allotted to the angles of the hexagram. So if we look at Kabbalistic teachings, there are colors associated with the king scale of color uh, and the queen scale of color. And uh, often these scales of color are used to visualize specific things in specific colors. The planetary powers allotted to the angles of the hexagram would put Saturn as being a, like an indigo color, the moon as being like a, a blue color, Jupiter as like a, a violet, Venus as green, Mars as red, Mercury as yellow, and the sun as orange. So if you were drawing in one particular element, you would visualize it as that particular color. And uh, that same table within the Kabbalistic teachings, the king scale of color also goes into that same uh, kind of stuff for the elements where it says that spirit is associated with white merging into gray air is associated with a bright pale yellow water with a deep blue uh, earth with citrine olive russet and black and fire with glowing orange scarlet so i think that we can surmise that based on him using this phrase thou shalt make it in the colors plural already taught upon a black ground that there is also some room for interpretation that while you might when you're first learning the ritual use this astral color that you might eventually uh, no longer go with a mentholated spirit burning color that you might later expand that into drawing the air element one as a bright pale yellow drawing the water as a deep blue etc um yeah there's a lot of room for interpretation there um i have had conversations with people over the years about magic where um, they were mentioning that specifically in the way that they were taught, they were taught through a specific initiatory school, they were taught that the greater ritual of the pentagram, you would always draw that pentagram in the elemental color, and then the background being either its opposite, like uh, if you stare at a color too long, and then you look at a white wall, you get the opposite color because your eyes have adjusted. Similar kind of concept being like, oh yeah, well, if we're doing a fire, uh, we might use red. And then the background might be green or vice versa. You might do a red background with green. Depends on how you want to do it. Um, so I know that there are traditions that are teaching specifically the use of the greater ritual of the pentagram in other colors. So it's also possible that when he's referencing that, he's making a more general statement about all of the pentagram rituals and that you would in fact do the lesser ritual of the pentagram with the mentholated blue color. It's up to interpretation. I have found both to be very, very effective. Um, so it's really up to whatever's going to work for you. Okay, so you draw some particular shape. 
starting at some particular corner and then in some particular color with this flaming aspect whether you want to go with Crowley's or Regardis method and then you say some word of divine utterance some divine name the Tetragrammaton is one of them Adonai, Ehie, and Agua depending on which quarter you're at so uh, the Tetragrammaton is at the um, east side the south is Adonai the west is Ehie and the north is Agla. Now, let's break down what those specific things are, where they come from, what they mean, what they translate to, and why we might use that particular one on each corner. So the Tetragrammaton, spelled yod heh vav heh is the fourfold name of God. It comes from Judaism. It is a word that is held with the highest uh, sanctity. It is unpronounceable and ineffable. It is forbidden to say this according to Jewish tradition and uh, except for a specific ritual that happens on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Uh, they would, like, let's say you're reading, uh, let's say you're reading something out loud. And, uh, let's say you're reading the Torah out loud and you come across this word. They would actually put another word in its place. They would put the word Adonai, which means Lord, into its place, or they might say Hashem, which means the name, and put that into its place. Uh, they, they don't speak it out loud, um, except for Yom Kippur. During Yom Kippur, there's this celebration where a specific individual of um, high religious authority will say the word during this uh, cer ceremony. And in, in olden times, they would get everybody in the whole city to go stand around the temple and make as much noise as possible. They'd get really, really loud and drown out all the noise. And then he would go into the holiest of holies and he would say the word out loud with its full pronunciation. And um, that is part of the reason, number one, there are a bunch of different pronunciations of the word. Number two, why there are people who choose to spell it versus say it. Uh, and number three, why I have uh, restrained myself from saying it throughout this entire episode and keep referencing it as the tetragrammaton tetragrammaton meaning four gramma meaning word fourfold word um and then uh why they might reading along a scripture let's say it, it says the word in there that they might say adonai meaning lord or they might it, let's say we're having a conversation like this one we're actually talking about the name itself we're not talking about um we're not talking about the Lord, who, who the name references. We're just talking about the name itself. You might say Hashem in its place um, instead of saying Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton is one of those things that uh, is going to show up a whole bunch if you start looking at medieval magic, um, hermetic schools, alchemy, those kinds of things. This is a very commonly used magical formula and uh, word of power. So uh, that's... The first one. The second one is Adonai. Now, um, all of these words can be spelled in four letters. And um, that seems to be by design. It is something that Regardi references in his working, is that each one of these are four four name or four lettered names of God. Adonai, spelled A-D-N-I, it's really spelled Aleph uh, Dalit Nun Yod. Um, but Adonai. Uh, it literally means lords it translates plural to lords some people have taken this to mean that judaism is polytheistic 
that there are multiple deities. Their tradition is not that it is polytheistic. In fact, they very much reinforce throughout every part of their teachings that they are a monotheistic religion. Uh, the word Adon means Lord, and the word Adonai means Lords. And they usually explain this as being uh, plural forms of majesty, similar to Elohim being um, plural for El. Um, that he is majestic of majestic of majestic of majestic. El meaning God. Uh, he is God of gods of gods of gods. Uh, Adonai meaning lords. He is Lord of Lord of Lord of Lord, etc. Being a pluralized form. There's Adonai has the most biblical uh, ref, uh, occurrences. It, it occurs nearly 450 times in the Bible. And nowadays it's mostly said during prayer or referencing um, the Tetragrammaton. So that's Adonai. The next one that gets said is Ehie. Ehie is an incredibly interesting one. It's spelled Aleph, He, Yod, He. Um, in the Hebrew alphabet. In English, it's A-H-I-H. Ehie, or, or sometimes it's spelled E-H-E-I-E-H. You'll see it spelled that way too. It's the first person form of the Hebrew word Haya, which means to be. So that means it translates to I am. And uh, it first shows, uh, or the, the important reference to I am is in Exodus 3.14, where God speaks to Moses. Moses says, hey, I'm going to go back to these people and tell them I talked to you, but they're going to call my shit. Uh, what do I tell them when they go, which, I mean, we just came out of Egypt, bro. Like, there's like a million gods in there, and they're all overlapping. And now I'm going to come down off this mountain and be like, one of the gods spoke to me. Uh, how am I supposed to tell them that it is you in particular? And that, what should I tell them that they will believe me? And God ref responds, Ehie, Asher, Ehie. Three words. Ehie, meaning I am. Asher, that. And then Ehie. So the, it's commonly translated as, I am that I am. And uh, that just seems like a really, when translated into English and taking all the context out, it seems like a really, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a great answer. It's like, I am that I am, bro. Like, okay, what? It, why is that important? But this, this scripture is given like a lot of importance. It's, it's very much an interesting thing to unpackage. One of the reasons why is because in Hebrew in that time period, there was no past or present tense. All words just kind of lacked tense. And so it's this weird folding in of the Hebrew language into this eternal concept. And it's contained in such a short amount of time. It's almost paradoxical. And, and its beauty is in its eternity because it lacks this present and past tense. For only three words, two of which being the same word, to fold the language in on itself to express eternity is one of the reasons why it's held to such import. So if ehie can be past or present tense, it, it can mean anything like I am who am, I will be what I choose to become, I am what I am, I will be what I will be, I create whatever I create, I am that which exists, I am that was and will be. I am because I am. There's so many different ways that the language folds in on itself when you just say these three words that it 
it becomes this explanation to Moses that I am eternity. And so there's a lot of really important details here that, uh, that warrant a very deep study uh, because it, it does this particular thing. And nowadays we just kind of say it in this weird, like snarky tone of like, I am bro. <laughs> like, you know, like how, how will they know which God I talk to? I am not the other ones. I am, you know, like it, it, it loses this important context that uh, really explains why this is such an important answer. The last one that we're going to unpack is Agla. Now, Agla is not a word. It is taking a lot of words, taking the first letter off of them, and smashing them together. Um, it's very common practice. And uh, in this case, we're not entirely sure which of these two sentences it is smashing together. It is one of these two things. It is either Ata Gabor Leolam Adonai or Adonai Gabor Leolam Amen, which would mean something along the lines of Thou Lord, Adonai, meaning Lord, Thou Lord art mighty forever. That's the, the phrase that it probably... So it either means Lord, Thou art mighty forever, Amen, or it means Thou Lord who art mighty forever. One of those two things. It, it appears in texts way before it ever gets explained. Uh, it gets used as a word of power throughout a lot of medieval magic, similar to uh, the Tetragrammaton. Um, it first gets explained in the 14th century. And that's where some of the issue lies, is that it gets written down a whole bunch of times. Agla, word of power. Agla, written around a circle. Agla, look at this magical diagram. And then in the 14th century, much later, someone is like, it means Atagabor Leolam Adonai. And everyone's like, oh, that makes sense. I wondered what that one was. And it was probably like passed down through some kind of like mystery school or tradition or something. Like they, they knew what the words were. Uh, but by the time that it gets explained in the 14th century, there are other authors who very soon afterwards say, no, no, it's not actually Atai Gabor Leolam Adonai. It's Adonai Gabor Leolam Amen. Either way, it is referencing the might forever. That's where that comes from. So, all right. We got these four words of power. They're going to go on four quadrants. Uh, why these particular god names on these particular corners? So, the god names in the rituals of the pentagram do not match. There are the god names that are within the lesser ritual of the pentagram and the god names which are in the greater ritual of the pentagram. The greater ritual of the pentagram uses a different system for deciding which is going on which quarter because the greater ritual of the pentagram is more elemental in nature whereas the lesser ritual of the pentagram is more cyclic in nature and more about connecting to spirit, connecting Malkuth to spirit. Um, so in the greater ritual of the pentagram, it follows the Kabbalistic associations. The Tetragrammaton for air, Elohim for fire, Adonai for earth, and all for water. In the lesser ritual of the pentagrams, we use the Tetragrammaton for air still, Adonai for fire instead of for earth, Ehie for water, and Agla for earth. This is a really interesting thing. Now, um, in 777, which is where Crowley put a lot of Kabbalistic tables that he had uh, learned in other places, and probably expanded some of those ideas himself, um, the Tetragrammaton is air in the ritual. In 777, it is also listed as air, which is why greater matches. Uh, Adonai 
is fire in the ritual. He lists it as earth in 777, which is why Adonai is on earth in the greater. Ehie, he lists as Kether in 777. It is water in the ritual. And Agla is not even a name of God. It's considered a magical formula in 777. It is the magical formula of Gaborah because it references might. So, um, yeah, why the difference? Well, first off, it's not a terrible way of doing it. Uh, a lot of these symbols can also be symbols of other things. If we take the Tetragrammaton, we look at what it is. It is the secret word, the secret name of God. It references things like secret knowledge, language, logic, those kinds of things. And that's a very air element type of thing to be associated with. Uh, Adonai being associated with fire in this context, uh, fire being, you know, related to like passion and dominion and creation of whose fire we are created, those kinds of concepts. Uh, you know, the idea of Lord fits pretty well with those ideas of dominion and, and passion. Ehie being associated with water. Uh, you know, water being wisdom, things that join things together and break things down. And the way that the language folds together and breaks down under Ehie, Asher, Ehie, it fits pretty well. And then finally, Agla being earth, being earth element, being this crystallization, this physical permanence, physical manifestation, makes sense that it's the one that references eternity being something forever. Um, it's also very, very possible that this is a sentence. In a lot of medieval magic, which the Golden Dawn was studying a ton of, um, and were some of the ones translating what we now have available to us, like the Goetia, um, Sacred Ma Magic of Albert Mel the Mage, those kind of things. A lot of those types of manuscripts were translated by this same group of people. Um, so it's, it's very possibly a sentence. And uh, often you will see sentences of power written around the outside of a circle. It would make sense that if you start at one and go around the circle for all of them, doing them in order. This is another reason why I suggest going clockwise for all of them is because you'll disrupt this sentence that's here empowering this whole energetic system. Uh, it would be um, Hashem Adonai Ehie Adonai Gabor Leolam, which would translate roughly to uh, Jehovah, Lord who is, Lord, thou art mighty forever. Um, it would make sense for a system like that to be incorporated. Regardi writes a little bit about the divine names, and this is... It's four paragraphs. It's a little bit longer of a quote than I like to read, but it perfectly encapsulates his interpretation and the interpretation of the tradition that he was learning at the time as to why these particular names are on these particular quarters, as opposed to using the elemental ones from 777. He says, uh, this is from the middle pillar, and he says, the name uh, yod -Heh, the tetragrammaton, is vibrated after the pentagram is drawn in the east, the direction attributed to the element air. Tradition tells us that Yerhevavhe is a symbol for the highest, most divine name of God. Therefore, it is appropriate that this name is vibrated in the East, the place of the dawning of light. The Tetragrammaton is our sunrise, our source of life. The next, uh, the next section goes into Adonai. He says, 
The name Adonai carries with it connotations of high rank, especially power, rulership, and dominion. Here, the name is associated with fire and the south, the direction of the sun's greatest strength. A reminder that here in Malkuth, our immediate symbolic link with the Lord of light and strength is through the life-giving rays of the sun. The next section is about Ehe. He says, Ehe, meaning I am, is the divine name of Kether. The west is the place of sunset, the completion of the sun's journey across the sky. It represents rest and peace. The name Ehe, vibrated in the west, suggests that the goal of all esoteric work is the magician's complete identification with the true and eternal self of Kether. In the last section, he talks about Agla. He says, Agla means thou art mighty forever, my lord, which is a powerful invocation, clearly calling upon the might of Adonai to aid and guide us through the darkness of all things known. Agla is vibrated in the north because that is the north, or that is the direction of the greatest symbolic cold, darkness, shadow, illusion, and the unfamiliar. Um, so that's that's what Regardi has to say about it. Now, there's another possibility that I want to bring up here. And that's that the timeline might be the reason why the words of power in these quarters are different from the words of power that are used in the later subsequent material. And it's that the Lester Banishing Ritual, the pentagram, is the very first ritual that's ever given to the Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, the Elemental Associations of God Names is material that gets studied for the Philosophist grade, which is the fifth grade within the Golden Dawn. And if you were starting a mystery school... Um, it's very possible that you wouldn't have all of the material fleshed out until there were people ready to receive it. So it is possible that the lesser ritual, the pentagram, um, because it was written before or taught before any, I mean, someone had to be the first initiate and that first initiate had to be given LBRP first. And then later they had to achieve the philosophist grade, the fifth grade and be given the elemental associations of the God names. It's very possible that, the elemental associations of God names was material that had not yet been defined. It's a possibility. I'm not sure uh, that that is a reason, but I always want to float those kind of things as potential reasons. Um, okay, so we know what word we're going to say on the different quarters. How do you say them? So Crowley goes pretty in length about this, and I love this particular piece of, of writing. He He talks about this method of what the word vibration of God names means. It talks about like how to actually do it. And this is a, a thing that he was taught in later grades. When they, when they issued the original lesser banishing words for the pentagram to individuals, they would literally just say, you know, you say it real loud, oh, say it real loud, right? Vibrate it. Um, by the time they had gone through several initiations and were more familiar with certain symbol sets, like certain stances of the body being associated with certain God forms, certain energy types, those kinds of things, they would kind of expand that information and be like, hey, you know how you were vibrating these names here? Vibrate them and then also do this other thing. And so it's not directly in the script, but Crowley does in that same text explain what this more advanced version is. And a lot of people nowadays just start with this one. I usually teach that you just start with this one. I just started with this one. It's a, it's a pretty valid way to do it. So he says, the vibration of God names as a further means of identifying the human consciousness with that pure portion of it, which man calls by the name of some God, let him act as thus. 
stand with the arms outstretched and then he says see illustration the illustration references a person standing with their arms outstretched kind of like they're on a cross or a big t or i'm sorry no this is the one where he stands which illustration is this stand outstretches up by the head the hands are up by the head then he breathe in deeply through the nostrils imagining the name of god des uh, desired entering with the breath let that name descend slowly from the lungs to the heart, to the solar plexus, to the navel, to the generative organs, and so to the feet. The moment that appears to touch the feet, quickly advance the left foot about 12 inches, throw forward the body, let the hands, drawn back to the sides of the eyes, shoot out so that you are standing in the typical position of the god of Horus. See illustration. This is the sign of Horus the Enterer where an individual has one step forward, is bent over at the waist, almost in like a bow or reaching motion, and is uh, their hands are drawn together as if they are plunging through, I don't know, it's almost like diving off a diving board, plunging in through a hole or reaching out for something which you can't see, but you're trying to, depends on your interpretation. Um, let's see. At the same time, imagine the name as rushing up through the body while you breathe it out through the nostrils with the air which have been till then retained in the lungs. All this must be done with all the force which you are capable. Then withdraw the left foot, place the right forefinger upon the lips so that you are in the characteristic position of the god Hippocrates. He says, see illustration. This is the sign of Hippocrates or the sign of silence where the individual stands erect and places a finger on their bottom lip. Um, which is a typical position which the god Hippocrates is often carved in when he is uh, depicted in statue form. Uh, he continues and says, It is a sign that the student is performing this correctly. When a single vibration entirely exhausts his physical strength, it should cause him to grow hot all over and to perspire violently, and it should so weaken him that he will find it difficult to remain standing. It is a sign of success, though only by the student himself it is perceived when he hears the name of the god vehemently roared forth as if by the concourse of 10,000 thunders, and it should appear to him as if the great voice proceedeth from the universe and not from himself. In both the above practices, all consciousness of anything but the god form and the names should be absolutely blotted out, and the longer it takes to, remain, to return to normal perception, the better. So it's not just that you are saying the name out loud if you're going to use Crowley's method which as we've already stated is a little bit more advanced method because it involves great signs um so there's that outstretched arms uh which is in the form of the t and then drawing in the breath you bring your hands up to you to the sides of your head fling it forth and vibrate very loudly i'm going to do one i'm going to do adonai just so you can kind of hear what it would sound like i'm going to step away from the microphone a little bit so it would be Adonai. I'm trying to expel literally everything that's in my body out through that. Uh, and then once you're all expelled, stand back up, finger to the lips. That's the method that Crowley suggests. Okay, so that is the opener, the Kabbalistic cross, and the pentagrams and the circles. We are going to continue next week or next episode. I always say week, but it's episode. We're going to continue in the continuation. We're going to go into calling the archangels, the proclamation, 
and closing it out. And we're going to dissect a lot of these symbols, similar to how we've dissected a lot of them here. We're going to dive into more depth with the later stuff. Uh, so I'm going to leave you here with that. And um, yeah, I, I think that this, this practice in general has been a, a really life-shaping thing. And even though I don't associate strongly with Judaic symbols, I still have found the study and practice of the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram to be a beneficial one. Uh, and it has definitely shaped my life and practice in a lot of ways, which probably go beyond my ability to explain it on a podcast. <laughs> so I hope you guys got a lot out of this episode. I hope everybody learned something. I know I did when I was throwing it together. I know in order to explain a lot of this stuff, I had to study quite a bit. And so I hope that others have found it to be beneficial. Um, I will see you next episode where we'll continue the discussion. And uh, good luck. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.